1: Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have my new friend, Rusty. Rusty, welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast.
0: Thanks, Dave. It's great
1: to be here with you. It's great to have you, man. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, You know, your life, marriage, ministry, and what ministry projects you're working on?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am starting my ninth year. I'm a professor at College of the Ozarks in Southern Missouri, a Christian Work College. been married to my wife for 16 years and we've got four kids um, two girls and two boys and when I went to met my wife at undergraduate um, at Carson Newman College, and we got married soon after that as I was studying at Southern Seminary. And after uh, graduating from Southern, uh, God called us to West Africa. So we had an opportunity to to move with our two girls at the time uh, to teach at the Cameroon Baptist Theological Seminary. So that was really kind of God's way of uh, exposing me to teaching ministry and to thinking about theological education and specifically theological education overseas. And I, and I mentioned that because I do think that that time was actually pretty formative, even in thinking about this, the, the book that I've been working on, on blessing and really started to see the significance of the idea working in a West African context and, and interacting with, with the church in Africa. Um, but so we were able to, to be there by God's grace and uh, had an amazing time, came back, started working on a PhD in Old Testament. And um, through that time of, of serving as a missionary to seminary, coming back. Uh, I've pastored uh, some churches, recently was involved in a church plant. uh I was one of the, the planting pastors a couple of years ago. And currently I uh, teach regularly at our church uh, in Missouri, uh, First Baptist Forsyth, and uh, lead adult Bible studies. And I have a very uh, excited and eager, but small group of people that I'm working with uh, in a elementary Greek class. Actually, at church. So this is my first time ever teaching like a biblical language. You know, just through a through a church format. But that's been kind of fun uh, to to see people excited to learn a biblical language, just simply because they want to, not because it's going to meet some degree requirement. Um, so I've been I've been working with them here recently. As far as you know, projects that I'm working on uh, right now, uh, I spend a lot of time in the prophets. So I'm I'm often thinking about the Old Testament prophets. I'm i working on an uh, exegetical commentary for Kregel now on the book of Ezekiel, uh, which is a massive book and just a big undertaking. And and there are frequently days from going, there's 48 chapters here. What was I thinking? Uh, but you know, the nice thing about commentary writing is at the end of the day, you're, you're just digging into God's word. You know, I mean, you're, you're working through the text, you're, you're reflecting on what it means and um, it's significance to the church. So, so that's fun. I've got a couple of other uh, side projects. Uh, um, I'm working with a, a study group with the, the Society of biblical literature on uh, nature imagery in the Bible so I actually I did my my dissertation was on tree imagery in the prophets and so I've spent a lot of time kind of reflecting on uh, metaphor theory tree imagery and things like that and so I'm uh, constantly kind of working and dabbling a little bit on metaphor use of metaphor and in, in the Old Testament uh, nature imagery and and those types of things so we've got a, a few things on the, the the burners just trying to to manage those I think the big one now is the the Ezekiel commentary trying to to knock it out and um, a couple of other things so I'm, I'm certainly glad the the blessing project has kind of come full full circle and uh, can now move it off of the burner onto something else
1: yeah wow that's great um really awesome I mean that's really cool that you're working on a commentary on Ezekiel that that's a tough look you know not many I don't think there's many commentaries written on that one so
0: well there's more than you would think as, as one who's having to read them all um, there's a it, it is it is a challenging book and in fact uh, I, I've taught a class a semester-long class at the college year on Ezekiel several times and um, one of the things I always tell students that has always drawn me to the book is part of its difficulty like I mean I really do I love the challenge of, of reading the book and and trying to understand it frankly I mean there are parts that are challenging there are, there are parts that we understand it but it's just you know challenging because is that saying what I think it's saying um, right so I mean it, it really is a book that reminds us of what I would say is I mean the the wildness of God and in, in the sense that I read Ezekiel and I'm constantly reminded like I'm, I'm never going to tame this god that I encounter in the scriptures um, he's he, he's operating at his own level He is uh, doing his program and he calls us as his people to a life of obedience and faithfulness. And it doesn't mean that we always get all of the answers that we want. And uh, Ezekiel is a a book of wrestling. And I feel like, um, you know, by God's grace, I'll be wrestling with it uh, until I get more answers when I see him in glory. Amen.
1: Well, can you tell us about your new book, uh, Divine Blessing and the Fullness of Life in the Presence of God, why you wrote it and how you hope it'll be received?
0: Yeah, you know, I mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago about uh, serving for a while in West Africa in Cameroon. And when I was there um, living and I've been back to to Kenya and Ethiopia to teach uh, with with some other ministries, and one of the things that that kind of initially impacted me about um, just kind of the the theological landscape of, of Africa was, one, how incredibly devoted my students were, how sold out and passionate they were in studying the scriptures and wanting to grow theologically but how they had been adversely affected by prosperity teaching. I mean, you, you just, it's, it's hard to reflect um, on kind of an African context where you don't see that um, just where it's coming in via television, radio, uh, books, various ministries. I mean, there's such a, uh, a prevalence of prosperity teaching. And so when I was living in Cameroon, I really kind of saw that and, and it just really burdened me. And in, and in one sense, like, like seeing the African church wrestle with the Old Testament specifically and these promises is kind of what prompted me personally to say, you know what, if I'm going to go do a PhD, what do I want to spend my time studying? Well, I want to study these scriptures that the church is wrestling with, right? What do we do with these promises and to, to Old Testament Israel? How do we make sense of this? I want to study that. So that, that experience really moved me toward uh, studying the Old Testament and always kind of kept this issue of... Of blessing um, in my mind so that this book really was kind of a unique experience for me. It wasn't something where somebody said like, hey, will you write this? It was really a book that I was going to write regardless of who took it or what happened to it. Like this was just kind of one of those personal projects where it's like, I want to write a biblical theology of blessing because I feel like um, that's what the church needs to hear to process and to think through how we rightly reflect on God's blessings in our lives. As I saw in Africa, oftentimes we would kind of uh, short-circuit that, and we even see that in a lot of Western contexts as well, and we need a, a full biblical picture of how we reflect on uh, God's blessing in the world to rightly understand it and to rightly apply it. So, I mean, that was really my, my driving goal in wanting to write this book, is um, in many ways not as a as a standalone critique of the prosperity gospel, several Several people have done those, and there are some helpful resources that kind of expose some of those problems. But really, I wanted to present a biblically, theologically driven alternative to a prosperity idea of blessing, right? So to say, you know, if somebody's thinking about the term of God's blessing, or they're starting to hear uh, kind of these prosperity teachings, and to, to step back and go, well, well where is a, a short book that gives me kind of a, a biblical, theological vision of God's blessing? And honestly, at the time, I, I mean, when I started writing this project, I, I wouldn't have had a book to hand somebody um, that was starting to wrestle with that. Um, and so that was really the, you know, kind of the goal for for writing the project. And I, and I hope that it is received by people who are not um, theologically trained. You know, I mean, I, I really do. I really did try to write this book for somebody who doesn't have a seminary education, uh, but who takes their faith seriously and is really Trying to wrestle with what what do we make of all of this blessing language that's thrown around the church today? How am I to think about God's blessing in my life? Um, I, I really do hope that this serves as a as a helpful theological guide uh, to people reflecting on those those questions. That's really good.
1: I, that's what I love about this series. I mean, even even for us, you know, my training was in the Bible and seminary and those types of things. And even for somebody like me who has formal, you know, masters level. I have like a, over a hundred credits the master's level um, kind of training in the Bible. I'm learning stuff in these books too. So it's just one. like I was telling my wife asked me she's like do you are you like she wasn't asking to be like mean or anything but she's like do you feel challenged in any way? I'm like and then I pointed to these because I had just read your book. And I'm mm-hmm. like you know what I like? I like these types of books because they take it they cover a whole theme and I'm like wow you know that's really interesting how it unfolds. I mean even though I've read the Bible and read the I read the Bible since yeah, you know it's still like wow that's so like it's new. It's not. I mean it's new. It's 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 not new in the sense like it's new revelation. It's just <laughs> new like the way it's put together and it traces a theme. And I just think that's so fascinating. So I I highly recommend this whole series uh, to people often because it's you know it it just opens up our understanding to the Bible how, what what it teaches and you know obviously how it relates to the gospel and everything. So I think really I've done a good job of that. Um, you know you were talking about. the prosperity gospel, uh, how has the prosperity gospel affected how Christians approach the subject of divine blessing? Well,
0: that's a, I mean, that's a great question. It's a, it's a very big question, right? Um, I mean, uh, Kate Bowler wrote a a very interesting book uh, that I I reference in my book. It's called Blessed. And it's, it's really more of almost kind of a sociological study, right? Of, of just kind of, what is the prosperity gospel in America? um, And how uh, has it impacted um, kind of Western Christianity. And I mean, anyone who's asking that question, I mean, uh, Kate Baller's book is, is a fabulous place to start just kind of to say, where do I get the landscape of what the prosperity gospel is? But she even alludes to the fact like it's kind of hard to even define. Like in one sense, you can have a conversation and talk about the prosperity gospel and people nod heads and we all understand it. But then when you try to like write some definition out, like it gets kind of swirly. you know, it's, it's kind of hard to say. Um, so, I mean, I mean, to, to not be you know, slippery and try to sidestep a question, I mean, I think that uh, ways that Western Christianity has talked about blessing and specifically what we think of as prosperity teaching that can float around you know, Pentecostal circles and things like this is, is really a failure to recognize the biblical theological movement of God's promises to his people in the Old Testament and how those promises find their fulfillment in Christ. I think that's the real breakdown. And, and I mean, in, in one sense, like I don't feel like my book is doing anything overly groundbreaking other than saying, like, hey, everyone, when we talk about God's blessings, let's not forget about Jesus. Because I feel like that's what so often happens, is that Christ is is kind of taken out of the picture. And for many in the prosperity movement and um in lots of other places in the world, majority world, um, you know, kind of the the southern church. Church, there's a real emphasis to read the Old Testament scriptures as a word written directly to me. So if if I'm in an African context, context and in a South American context or uh, some of these other contexts, there's a there's a, a challenge there for people to read the Old Testament scriptures, these promises given to Israel, and they absorb them directly as God's word to me. Um, I use the example in class. To the extent, I mean, uh, I I had a student one time in in class tell me that he knew of a church that was going to another village and walking around the village to fulfill God's word given to Joshua that everywhere your feet walk, I've given you Mm-hmm. And, and they were reading that, right, as, as a word coming directly to them to be carried out in that way. And I think for many in the prosperity movement, like they love the Old Testament. This is the irony. This is the interesting fact of, of kind of the prosperity movement. They love the Old Testament. Um, the A couple of summers ago, I went to the public library and I checked out, you know, like 25 Joel Osteen books, um, brought them home, <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, I, I didn't read. Them all in their entirety because they say a lot of similar things. But as I'm working kind of through them systematically, because I wanted to get an idea of like what you know, I you mean, know, what is Olstein saying? Like what what's what's going on here? I mean, he loves the Old Testament. His books are full of Old Testament scripture, and in fact, you you almost have a hard time finding him talk about the New Testament because his books are looking at Old Testament texts and applying them directly to us. But there's never discussion about how these Old Testament promises find. And their fulfillment in Jesus and so I, I think that one of the great problems that the prosperity movement has is that they reflect on God's blessings without seeing the full extent of God's blessing mm-hmm. so I mean I don't I don't want to you know uh, label Harry job in prosperity movements or anything but I, I recently had a student come up to me after class and say hey you know dr. Osborne have you heard uh, this song by Carrie job called the blessing because uh, he knew I was working on this this project on blessing and I was like no not really but I, I sought it out and I, I listened to it and there's an interesting part of the song where she's like calling out you know may the, may god give you favor may god give you favor and calling for us to to receive God's favor and in in one sense like yeah I'm happy to pray that God would exercise his his favor upon his people but as those who are united with Christ by faith we are no longer in sackcloth and ashes praying for God to show his favor upon us we we have received God's favor in Christ. Now, can we continue to pray that God would bless us in various areas of our lives? Absolutely. But I feel like the prosperity gospel fails to recognize the fullness of blessing that comes to us in salvation by Christ and ultimately by receiving the Spirit of Christ. That, that uh, The New Testament picture of blessing is bound up in both our Christian salvation and our reception of the Spirit. It's not just tied to a, how do I get more cattle and more kids, Old Testament vision of blessing. It's how do I come to understand the fullness of who God has created me to be? And that is already well underway in the gospel. So we're not trying to figure out how to get God to bless us. First off, I think we need to echo Paul in Ephesians 1, right? That God has blessed us. that's Paul's not saying, oh God, bless. Saying, let's rejoice. God has blessed us. And I think that's, that's where we see a lot of um, distortion in the prosperity gospels portrayal of blessing a failure a failure to see that God has already blessed us in Christ and to trade that blessing in for really when I say blessing I mean a better house a bigger car or or uh, you know some type of, of material wealth or something along those lines
1: no that that's really good that's that's really really good how do the opening chapters serve uh, opening chapters of Genesis serve as the foundation for a biblical world yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I, uh, I think Genesis is foundational to the way that we see the world because in these opening chapters, I mean, we're, we're given a God's eye perspective to who we are as human beings and how God is to relate to us, right? I mean, uh, in, in many ways, postmodernism has told us all that we can, we, there is no God's eye perspective, right? None of us can have insight into how the world works. And the early chapters of Genesis push directly against that and say, no, actually, as, uh, as human beings, we can see a God's eye perspective and who we were made to be and how we were made to function in the world. And in those first chapters, we received this pattern, right? I mean, this is this is Goldsworthy, Grim Goldsworthy's language. I think it's very helpful, this, this pattern of the kingdom. That is that in the first few chapters of Genesis, we see God's intended design for his world. And that's always so fundamental, right? Because we're asking, what does God want from his creation? What does God want from his creatures? Well, we see it right there in those first chapters, and it's in chapter one that we're first introduced to the notion that God wants to bless his world, right? God wants to bless his people. We we encounter he's blessing the, the animals that he's creating. He's blessing uh, his image bearers. He's blessing his Sabbath, right? I mean, Genesis chapter one and, and the first uh, verses of chapter two are, are very much focused on God's desire to bless. And I think that is paradigmatic for what will follow. Um, So that I I didn't feel like I was having to try to find the way that blessing is a central theme in the Bible. I think Genesis 1 sets you off on a trajectory that says blessing is central to God's design for the world because we see it emphasized in this first chapter. We see that it's going to go wrong, unfortunately, pretty quickly in Genesis 3. But then one of the First great acts of the, the restorative acts of God to restore His blessing is you know in the, in the covenant with Abraham. So you just you, you just start at Genesis one and you read the first fifteen chapters of the Bible. This theme of blessing is inescapable. We see that this is very much bound up in God's vision for the world. And if it's important to God, as those who seek to 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 think God's thoughts after Him, as so many have said, if it's important to God. then... And it's important to us right I mean if if this is part of how God is envisioning his program for his creation then that's very much tied up in the way that we should see God's vision for us as his creatures oh, that,
1: that's a really good answer really good answer why, why is it essential that we recognize the temple garden nature of the of the Garden of Eden
0: yeah so you know this is kind of I think more of a a recent phenomenon and um, you know anytime you talk about Genesis there are always kind of of your your controversial areas, and I don't want to, you know, kind of wade into uh, any of those controversies here, because there there are, I think, scholars that would recognize that there is a significant kind of temple connection to the garden without kind of having to embrace a, a broader vision of Genesis, right? So, um, I know there's division over, you know, uh, how how we kind of sort this out, but when we think about the garden and the temple, what what Gordon Winham Old Testament scholar uh, wrote in a a very short article, but it was highly influential and it's been cited hundreds of times ever since, is that you you do see some very considerable parallels uh, between the garden... And the later tabernacle and temple, and in some ways that that relationship goes both ways. Certainly, it, that relationship shows us about how Israel was an envi- was envisioning, and God was presenting to them the tabernacle and the temple as almost a garden 2.0 in the tabernacle, and a garden 3.0 in Solomon's temple, to where the idea is that when you as a priest or a worshiper are going into the tabernacle or going into the Temple in a real way, you were almost entering back into this artificial garden, which is characterized by God's presence, but is also filled with imagery that was connected to the garden. I mean, certainly the temple. I mean, you read uh, the description of Solomon's temple in Kings. I mean, it's you walk through two pillars that were stylized like trees. The, the walls themselves are covered in flowers and garden imagery. Uh, many scholars, uh, you know, uh, believe that perhaps even the menorah was in the shape of of a stylized tree that could have represented the tree of life. And then you've got the caribbean um, on the curtain separating God's presence, just like they did on the east side of the garden. I mean, there, there's a very intentional parallel structure, especially between Solomon's temple and the garden. And that tells us very much about what the idea of the temple was. It was re, it was entering again into God's presence, albeit mediated and, and cut off by these cherubim. But I think that also helps us look back and to think, a little bit about what Adam's role in the garden was, that um, we see these two key words in Hebrew to Avad and Shemar. He's told that, that God put the man in the garden to Avad and Shemar, to work and to keep. And uh, Winham also reminds us that these words are significant because we find that word pair later on in describing the work of the priests in the tabernacle and the priests in the temple. So that you almost get this picture that um, Adam's work in the garden was a priestly keeping. Um, the, the garden was it was intended to be this place of worship, and God's worshipers were to inhabit the garden, and Adam had a, a priestly work that he was to do. And I th- this is in- incredibly significant when we think about the way that we think about our work in the world and our uh, productivity in the world. I think the garden shows us that in God's good design and the way that God intended the world, that we would... Work and that work would in, in indeed be worship, and that there was not a, a separation. The, the world was not divided into our secular job and our sacred Sunday worship. It was a, a a working worship that all that we would do would be seen as done unto the Lord. And I mean, does Paul not tell us that? Right. This is not something new in many ways. This is what the New Testament tells us: whatever you do, do as unto the Lord. Um, whether you eat or drink, you know, uh, do all things to the glory of God. The New Testament has this holistic vision of the Christian life lived in obedience and faithfulness to the to the Lord in every area. And I think these early chapters of Genesis portray Adam and Eve as kind of working in this priestly vice regent role in God's garden to say that yes, that was God's design from the beginning that we would exercise this role as as priest and vice. Regent as one who is exercising God's authority um, on, in His world and reflecting His image and bringing glory to Him.
1: Yeah, that's that's really great. How how important is Genesis three fifteen to the unfolding story of the Old Testament and to the unfolding story of redemptive history?
0: Um, well, I, I, mean, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Genesis three fifteen is is a, a very um, enigmatic text. I think that's a good way to describe it. And you know, if you're if you're listening to this and you're not familiar. Uh, Genesis three fifteen is is the the text where um, God has spoken his curse over the serpent. But then in this enigmatic uh, phrase, you know, states, "But I will put enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Um, uh, he will crush your, uh, you will wound his head, but he will crush your heel." Right? I mean, this kind of imagery of the offspring of the woman's standing on the head of the offspring of the, of, or standing on the head of the serpent, and there's going to be kind of this mutual wound. But the the heel will be wounded, but the head of the serpent will be crushed. Um, so I say enigmatic because it certainly raises some questions, right? And and I always, as I discuss this text, um, talk about how if you if you just go, you know, what is Genesis three fifteen talking about? I think a, a, a quick biblical kind of theological biblical theological answer, canonical answer, is Jesus right? And, and for a long time, that's why people uh, refer to it as the Proto-Evangelium, uh, the first gospel, this this kind of first um, glimpse of, of the gospel. And, and certainly, uh, I think that is the case. I think this is good news. I think this is the first kind of good news that we see in a post-fall world, uh, that humanity has rebelled against God. They've usurped His moral goodness, and there's going to be consequences. But here is the good, news. There is going to come an offspring of Eve that will crush the head of the serpent. That, would, that It appears that will also suffer simultaneously, but that this offspring of the, the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's good news, but that's all it tells us, right? So, so, I mean, it really does kind of set you up as the reader to say, who is this? Who is this offspring of Eve that's going to crush the head of the serpent? And as the, you know, the rest of the, the biblical story unfolds, we get greater clarity as to who it isn't. And then as we start to get to the prophets where we see God portraying what he's going to do in restoring and saving his people, that portrait of who this one is going to be that's going to crush the head of the serpent comes into greater focus until we we see it from a full New Testament canonical perspective, the one who is going to crush the head of the serpent is the Lord Jesus Christ. And, And he is going to be the one that is going to overcome um, the power of, of Satan uh, so so I think it's I think it's foundational I mean I think it's very much kind of the, the f- first, um, picture of, of the fact that God is not abandoning his rebellious people, that he is going to, to see to it that this serpent is overcome.
1: Oh, that, that's a great answer. Great answer. Um, how does understanding the reality of the Old Testament as a story of Israel's covenant faithfulness and God's continued work despite Israel's sin affect how we read the Old Testament?
0: I think that, um, for a lot of people, the Old Testament is a very strange book. Um, I, I read the Old Testament a lot. And as somebody who studies the Old Testament and teaches the Old Testament, there's a tendency for me to think that everybody sees it or thinks about it the way that I do. And, and mm-hmm. you know, the reality is the Old Testament is just this, this massive piece of literature that um, can feel very disparate at times and can feel very jarring. I mean, to jump from the Psalms to Deuteronomy to Leviticus to Job, to Isaiah. I mean, you're, you're traversing centuries in history. You're traversing literary genre that none of us really operate in today, right? So they're, they're culturally removed literary genre. Uh, and, and we're having to navigate to say, how do I make, make sense of all of this? And so I think for some people, when they approach the Old Testament, they see it as just kind of this story about this people that lived long ago, Israel, right? It's, it's a history of Israel. That, that inhabited this land at some special time and space, and we've got some laws about them, and it seems very removed from us. And I know from just teaching Old Testament enough and talking with students and, and asking them, like, how is the Old Testament hard? I mean, oftentimes it's like it just seems irrelevant. It seems removed. It seems so wholly other. Um, how do we make sense of that? And I think the way that we have to approach the Old Testament is, is not just as telling us this um, you know ancient facts about those people that lived long ago, but to understand that Israel themselves are God's covenant people, and that we are coming to know God as we see God interact with His people through the covenant. John Walton he has a great quote in his intro that I reference a lot, and saying that 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 God's self revelation is coming through covenant interaction. Like, I mean, we get to know God because of these key moments in the story. God says, this is who I am. And this is how I'm going to deal with my people. And we get to know God that way. And and those covenants progress and they move through the old Testament story so that we come to a greater awareness of who God is as he's revealing himself covenantally. So, so I, I am very excited about the movement within a lot of, uh, uh, Baptist circles that I, um, I'm familiar with, uh, uh, Gentry and Wellam's kingdom through covenant and kind of, uh, um, uh, some of the 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 movement toward embracing more of a covenantal structure of a biblical theology, because I, I do see covenant as functioning as a backbone of what God is doing and revealing himself to his people. And so we come to know God as we interact and we reflect on the way he's dealing with his people through these covenant structures. So if we ignore these covenants, we will, by necessity, misinterpret the texts that are bound up in those covenant frameworks. So that what what I said earlier about how uh, the the prosperity gospel tends to kind of miss some things and applying these Old Testament scriptures, I think that's because they are ignoring the covenantal developments that happen in scripture. And when God makes a covenant, He's saying basically, from this point on, this is how I am dealing with my people. And when God makes that covenantal declaration, you don't get to ignore it. You don't get to go, yeah, but I'd like to go back to an earlier stage, mm. right? So uh, we, we might say it this way, like the the, the, the prophets speak of, of this coming new covenant, and Jesus Christ on the, the night before he's crucified calls his disciples into the room, and he says, this is the blood of my, my covenant. This is the blood of the covenant that I'm establishing with you, uh, the blood of this new covenant that Christ is establishing. When Jesus establishes the new covenant, the apostle Paul tells us, you don't get to go back to the old one. God has said, from this point on, this is how I'm dealing with people. You will come to me through Christ. Christ says, I am the door. I am the way. This is now the way that you will come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, not Torah. You don't get to go back in time. Um, And so I think that covenant is absolutely foundational for the way that we understand Israel's interaction with God. And ultimately, that ties into how we relate to God as new covenant believers. And that is foundational to how we read these Old Testament texts. We need to always recognize the covenantal framework that's giving a context to these Old Testament passages, talking about blessing, and and then find okay, how does that apply with to to Israel in their covenantal setting? But then, how would we bring that into a, a new covenant framework as God's people?
1: That's that's really good. You know, I just reminded as you're talking, it's like people read these stories, right? They read the Old Testament stories, like oh this happened in this person's life and this, so we, you know, we can take lessons, you know, from their life. And, uh, but, but larger than that, we should see, you know, I'm just reminded, I'll use a famous example, you know, um, uh, David defeating, uh, you know, Goliath. What what people miss is David didn't, he showed up on the scene, but he, there was a reason for that. He came, the text tells us that he came at just that right time where Goliath was blaspheming the people of Israel. He, and he was agitated. He was upset because the people of Israel were doing nothing, nothing to, you know, put him down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I know people take that, you know. Oh, the stones and those type of things. I'm not going there. But it's the the point is, I think, is that God is sovereign. You know, God sovereignly brought David at that time in in that in that period of history, raised him up. You know, he, he was a shepherd boy. He had just been anointed uh, um, to lead the nation of Israel. Although, you know, we know that's not till later. And um, but but he was there. You know, and he, you know he found out what was happening, and then you know he ended up killing Goliath. And what we see there is that God is like you're saying God. God is sovereignly at work in the lives of people. Um and so we miss that if we just say, Oh, well, the story is about throwing stones, you know. Mm-hmm. We we need to have, you know, an understanding of what's happening with the stones. Uh, actually, I think the story is about the sovereignty of God in the life, you know, David and the people of Israel overthrowing um, you know, the enemy the enemy, which is Goliath, and there's you know the unfolding drama therein. It's a pivotal moment in the book of first first Samuel, and that's so often missed. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. And I mean, I was just you know, kind of thinking back to the the question that you asked me and thinking about God's covenantal faithfulness. And so reflecting on the Old Testament as a covenantal text, I mean, generally, when we think of a covenant, we're thinking about a relationship between two parties, and much of the Old Testament drama unfolds as we're wrestling with what is the faithful covenant member going to do with the unfaithful covenant member, right? What is God going to do with Israel as they continue to walk in unfaithfulness? And one of the great places we see, and I alluded to it earlier, is is just in these first chapters of Genesis, where God's covenant faithfulness and God's commitment commitment to his desire to bless is played out in the life of, of Abraham, right? So that we, we see this commitment of God. He, he's entered into this covenant relationship with his creatures, with his uh, image bearers, and he's so committed to it that he calls out this new family and he says, through you, I will bless all the families of the world. That that God is going to keep his uh, covenantal commitment to, to, to produce blessing for his creatures, the way that he uh, blessed them in Genesis chapter one, the way that he re-blessed them, we might say, uh, after the the flood with Noah and his sons, that God continues to bless his people, even when they rebel, even when they want to build a tower uh, up to him and and they want to take up there and make a great name for themselves and, and bless themselves. God says, that's not how this program is going to work. I'm going to be the one who gives you a great name, Abraham, and I'm going Going to through you and your descendants, make you a channel of blessing to the nation so that my creation initiative to bless the world will take place through your line, Abraham.
1: That's really good. You've mentioned uh, the prophets several times now, and um, you know, I know that gets back into Deuteronomy and those types yep. of things, but we won't get into that, but or, or maybe you will in this question. Why, why is it important to see the prophets as covenant enforcers calling the people of God back to their covenant? King?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the prophets have, one One of the reasons, I like, I love the prophets, and I said, you know, I'm working on the uh, project for Ezekiel, I'm, I'm frequently thinking about the prophets, and one of the reasons I love the prophets so much is that the prophets, I think, really do function as a, as a biblical theological hinge between the Old Covenant and the New. They are stepping into the world of the Old Covenant, right? But as God's uh, mouthpieces, as God's Agents of of declaration, they are also declaring what is not yet. So they do inhabit this kind of biblical theological zone where you are transitioning from life under the old covenant to these uh, vistas of life in the new covenant and new covenant realities that extend even to what God's going to do in the new heavens and the new earth. So as these, as the prophets come on the scene, what they're doing is they're stepping into the world of the old covenant and they're calling the people of Israel. Um, to account for the fact that they have violated God's covenant stipulations, right? So they're, they're approaching the people and saying, you've sinned, you have uh, turned to other gods, you've um, you, you've not done what God has called you to do as his covenant people. And this is frequently why the prophets use the, the imagery of marriage, right? Marriage imagery is very common in the prophets. Why? Because it's a covenantal framework and it's one that you get. It's one where there are obligations from, from both parties. And when there's unfaithful and marriage, it's it's nasty and there are consequences and it's bad. And so frequently we have this marriage picture that the prophets present with the people and the people have been spiritually adulterous, right? That's that's a very prominent uh, prophetic image. And the prophet is saying, you sinned against your covenant partner. And so the prophets bring all of the covenant history into focus. The prophets tell us, this is what you've been doing. But here again, they also tell us God is not done. Your the, the the covenant partner that you've entered into, the covenant member Yahweh is not finished with you. He has not abandoned his commitment to his people. He has a future for them, and that judgment which the prophets certainly spend a lot of time talking about is never the final act in God's redemptive history. Right? It's never it, it's never going to be the final picture. That there is always restoration on the other side of judgment. That Israel, as God's people, will receive punishment. They will be exiled. There, there will be judgment, but that's not the end. That God is committed to this promise uh, through his people to bring blessing, and there will be hope on the other side of that. So I'd I, I see the prophets as having a central role in helping us understand this movement from Israel's sin in an old covenant framework to kind of these vistas of new covenant restoration and salvation that they hold out in front of us as well. Mm, That's a really good answer. Well, here's an interesting question for
1: you. How does our understanding of blessing affect our understanding of the end times?
0: Well, that's a great question. Um, I love that question because I think too often our understandings of blessing don't take into account the end times. Um, When we think about blessing, we're thinking, God, what are you going to give me right now? And I think that the biblical story unfolds with God giving us everything. I think that we have this biblical theology of blessing that sees God in the end creating a world um, through the power of His Son and through the, the restoration and salvation of His Son that God bringing about a new heavens and a new earth that is going to be a world of blessing where His people indeed get all that they were ever designed to get, which is God Himself and everything else. So I think one of the reasons that we really kind of Miss the the biblical heartbeat on blessing is because our biblical theology doesn't extend far enough. We stop at the present. We think, okay, what's God doing in the Old Testament? What's God doing in the New Testament? What's God doing now? That's it. Do I get a car? Do I not get a car? Do I get a new house? Do I not get a new house? Am I going to get healed? Do I not get healed? We stop our biblical reflection at the present. Well, we both know the biblical story goes on past the present. And so once again, we're called with the prophets to look to these vistas of blessing that God has promised so that with the Apostle Paul, we can navigate the present because we have a proper understanding of blessing in the future. So that, as as many have pointed out, again, you know, the, the issues with the prosperity gospel is not that they're emphasizing that God is going to bless Christians. Of course God is going to bless Christians. The problem is a matter of timing. The problem is a matter of eschatological timing. It's, it's an over-realized eschatology, as some would say. It's trying to bring about the blessings of the end times right now. It's abandoning the cross and saying, I want the crown. But if, as Philippians tells us, right? I mean, Jesus Christ, who um, submitted himself, he, he took the cross to the point of death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. We have this narrative picture of Jesus in, in Philippians chapter two, cross first, then crown, right? Submission, humility, crucifixion, glory. And as Christ followers, often we don't want to live that narrative. We don't want Christ's story. We don't want humiliation, suffering, and cross, and then crown. We would just like the crown, please, and as fast as possible. And I think that that impacts the way that we think of blessing, because we go, give me the crown and all of my blessings now, like the prodigal son says to his father before he's dead, right? I want it now and, and and it's not god's timing god has a time where he's going to give his people all things i would argue that we see this that that there will be this new heavens and new earth where god's creation and his people are fully restored to everything that God designed, but it's not now, and so that's what creates the tension we feel between understanding the fullness of God's blessing and making sense of my life when I don't get the good things that I think that I want. Mm, great answer, great answer.
1: Well, Rusty, where can people go to find out more about your work online, either on social media or otherwise, brother?
0: Well, I know uh, Crossway should—I think they have a, the website up and going for the book, um, uh, Divine Blessing, and the fullness of life and the presence of God, uh, I think you can pre-order it at, at Crossway if, if people are interested in that. Um, I, re- well, I think I will have a couple of pieces coming out on, on Crossway's blog that'll uh, be out. I've written some things on Gospel Coalition and um, Credo Magazine, a couple of other places. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would direct anyone that, that really wants to uh, get their hands on it. Just go ahead and, and pre-order. It should be coming out, I believe, in October, um, so. So I'm excited to, to see this project come to fruition and, and pray that the, the Lord would use it to, to help all of us um, reflect more rightly on what it means to experience the fullness of life in His presence.
1: Wonderful, Rusty. Well, I have really have enjoyed the conversation today. You've done a great job helping our listeners understand this subject more. I want to encourage our listeners to go ahead and pick up this book. You'll really enjoy it along with the rest of the series. So thank you, Rusty, for your time, brother.
0: Thanks a lot, Dave. i enjoyed being here. Thank you.